amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we kick off with this week's podcast, I have a very special announcement to make. I am really happy to be able to tell you that my new book is being published on the 5th of June. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, and it is basically a blast against the conformism of our time. It covers everything from gender ideology to COVID authoritarianism to climate change hysteria, and it makes the case for having a bit more heretical thinking. It's a rallying cry for heretics. It's a rallying cry for freedom of thought, and I really think you're going to like it. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon UK or Amazon US, so do that straight away. We've also got a very special offer. Anyone who donates £50 or more to Spite will get a signed copy of the book while stocks last. To do that, go to spiked-online.com donate. Plus, if you're a Spike supporter, you can attend the online launch of the book on Monday the 5th of June. Andrew Doyle will be interviewing me about the book and taking your questions too. So Spike supporters can sign up for that book launch right now by going to the supporters hub on Spiked. So whether you are pre-ordering the book on Amazon or donating in order to get a signed copy, don't delay. Go out and get your copy of A Heretic's Manifesto now. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoy the book. And now on with the show. Weakness in group terms is not a virtue. Unfortunately, the race debate here tries to portray groups that are in weaker positions today are somehow inherently more virtuous. I'm not saying that the groups that are stronger are stronger because they are more virtuous. You know, strength is also not a virtue. It's a state of being. It's a condition. It's a circumstance. And if you want your group to be in a strong position, you need to figure out what you need to do to get to that strong position rather than spending your life simply you know, criticizing those who are in a strong position and trying to suggest explicitly or implicitly that you are in a weaker position because your group is somehow more moral. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Remy Adekoya. Remy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Remy, let's talk about your latest book, It's called It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth, How the Economics of Race Really Work. And I guess I want to start with a pretty broad question, which is what compelled you to write a book that lifts the race discussion out of the moral realm and puts it into the material realm? So so what you do with this book very effectively is that you try to take the race discussion away from the quite moralistic, fatalistic a road that it's gone down, this idea that it's down to this free-floating toxin called whiteness, or it's the imprint of history uh, on contemporary society, although you don't discount the influences of history, which is, we can come back to that. But you try to take it away from those rather fatalistic, moralistic understandings of, of racial tensions and racial divisions and make it more of a material question, looking at the structural, material 
differences between uh, parts of the world which might influence how we understand race and how we think about different social groups. And you have this great line at the beginning in which you say, a race debate not embedded in detailed material realities is just intellectual masturbation. So that really sets the tone for the book. So what, what, what was frustrating you about the race discussion that made you feel that you had to write a book that brought things back to questions of money and material stuff? So a central theme of the race debate today is power. So um, when there's talk of, of white racism, um, uh, the reason why it is emphasized so much is that it is connected to power. And there's this whole idea that, you know, racism is really power plus privilege. And so that's why some people make the arguments that, oh, you know, black people can be privileged or even can be racist, but it doesn't really matter because, you know, black people don't have power. It's white people that have power. And so it's their prejudices that really matter that we really need to worry about. So I said, OK, so power is one central theme in the whole discussion. Another central theme that is not that often talked about, but I discern in between a lot of the words is the idea of status. And status really is essentially where others position us in the grand scheme of things. And so there's a lot of talk about how all, you know, there's ideology of white supremacy and a lot of the world is bamboozled and, you know, looks up to white people for no logical reason whatsoever, just because white people have told them to do so. And there's an anti-blackness or people looking down on black people and on other brown people also for no discernible um, uh, logical reason. You know, it just, you know, happens like that. And, and a lot of sort of the actions that are taken are taken to try and elevate black status. And we can get to that later on. And so I said, okay, fine. So we have the issues of power and status. So, okay, for me, if you're trying to think about race in a strategic um, way, you don't, you know, sit down and lament and say, oh, you know, so white people have all this power and, you know, oh my God, that's so terrible. You say, okay, what's the source of this power? And so I tried, I came up with the definition of power, which is that power is the ability to influence events, environments, and people. So essentially to be able to influence what happens, what places, the physical places uh, we live in, what they look like, and how people think and behave. And so all of us have some power some of the time. The question is, some groups or individuals have much more of it than others. So, okay, I ask myself, what gives certain groups and individuals, if we're looking at that, uh, the power to influence events, environments, and people more of a power than others have? And I came up with the answer of money, wealth. Because at the end of the day, we live in a capitalist world. Whether you live in Brazil, India, Kenya, or Britain, the defining future of your everyday life is capitalism. And for me, this is not about, you know, waxing anti-capitalists, simply stating a matter of fact. That is the world we live in. And so a capitalist world runs on money. Virtually anything you need, whether it's in the life of an individual uh, or in the life of a group or of a nation, you need resources to do it. You need money to be able to build roads, hospitals, schools, to have clothes on your back, to have a home to live in, to have a car to drive, and pretty much almost anything else you need in your everyday material life. You need money for that. And so the wealth gaps between groups, if we look at them, are huge. And I also get to the, the, to the fact of how money also affects status. So, but let's focus on power, the ability to influence events, environments, and people. Now, if we look at the global picture, 
not just focus on the parochial um, British picture or, or American picture, we see that there's huge global wealth divides. So as I mentioned at the beginning of the book, you know, countries like single European states like Britain and Germany have larger economies than the entire continent of Africa, where 1.4 billion people live and where 90 percent of the black people in this world live. And even if you add um, the GDPs of all the black majority nations in the world together, including those in the Caribbean, they still wouldn't be as large as the GDP of Germany, which is a $4 trillion GDP. And so that's the kind of world we live in. So there's these huge differences, wealth gaps between nations. And while nations are diverse, there is a correlation of racial group to racial majority within most nations. So nations are diverse, but almost Every nation in the world has a clear racial majority. Most of Africa is black. Most of Europe is white. And so if we live in a world in which there's like 30 wealthy or relatively wealthy white majority states and hardly any wealthy black majority states, there is clearly a correlation here between wealth and racial group. Mm-hmm. Okay, So that's how, um, and, and that's the world we live in. And this has everyday practical consequences in who is able to decide what, in who works for who, in who is seen as more important, um, uh, who are the people who call the shots, and also you know, who are the people on whom status is conferred. Because also in this capitalist reality, you know, what do we respect? What do people respect? Of course, people respect sometimes moral values of people, you know, that people are you know, decent people, virtuous people. But we also have huge respect for success for material success. We are achievement-oriented societies. We are achievement-oriented world. You know, people respect those who are seen as successful, you know, those who are wealthy. There's a reason why when a billionaire walks into the room, uh, people are more likely to listen to what they have to say than they might be likely to listen to what someone else has to say, you know, because everyone wants to be successful, you know. And if we extend this other to groups, groups Having a lot of wealth, if we talk about um, the white group, um, if we take it as a single group, we're of course speaking in, in broadly generalistic terms. The fact of that wealth enables white majority nations to do a lot of things which black majority nations are not able to do. And this has consequences in the everyday lives of black people say, who live in Britain and are British citizens. Okay, So they are British citizens and of course have all the access to all the privileges that accrue to being a British citizen, because that's a huge privilege, for instance, the NHS, and being able to access free medical care at the point of delivery, that's something most of the world simply doesn't have. So, of course, if you're a black or brown citizen of Britain, you have access to all these privileges that British wealth brings. But you are also dealing with various perceptions of blackness and perceptions of people of other groups that exist that may not necessarily be positive because of the fact that you are not associated with, you know, those richer groups. That's a very useful starting point, a very useful outline of of the the substance of the book. And I want to focus for a moment on the question of global inequality, because I find this such an interesting issue. It's been an, an interesting and disturbing issue for a very long time. But I find the lack of attention it gets today from significant uh, numbers of people involved in the race discussion or in contemporary public discussion. I find that strange and worrying. There's a brilliant chapter at the start of the book where you paint a picture of just how um, extraordinary global inequality is. And as you've just said, that tends to mean inequality between white majority nations, which tend to be richer, and black or brown majority nations, which are the poorest. 
And so you've said there that um, we have a world in which single European states, including Britain and Germany, have larger economies than the whole continent of Africa, which is home to 1.4 billion people. Uh, and roughly, as you say in the book, 90% of the world's black population live in Africa. One of the things that leapt out at me from from this chapter, because I, I, I originally, my family comes from Ireland, I was really struck by the idea that, as you say, tiny island with just 5 million people had a, has a GDP of $520 billion in comparison to $411 billion for South Africa, which is the most industrialized black majority nation. I mean, that is extraordinary. Ireland would not be considered an extravagantly rich country, and yet it outdoes even South Africa, which is a huge industrialized society. Um, one thing that really struck me, and I found this disturbing, and I did want to ask you about it, is um, GDP per capita and who gets to be defined as middle class. And you point out that the World Bank defines the global middle class as those who earn around $1,000 a month. And you point out that uh, eight out of 10 Europeans and nine out of 10 North Americans uh, earn that much, compared with just one in four people in China, one in six people in Latin America, uh, one in nine people in the Middle East, and then in South Asia and Africa, where most of the world's black and brown people live, just one in 50 people achieve that World Bank definition of uh, being middle class, earning $1,000 a month. I mean, really extraordinary stuff. It's an incredibly eye-opening chapter. And I wanted to ask you why, given the starkness of that capitalist reality, given how influential this inequality must be on how a nation and a people perceive of themselves and perceive of others, why is it so often excluded from conte very contemporary discussions on race? I mean, global inequality was a concern of anti-racist campaigners in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. It, it was there. It was a, a large focus, third world liberation, liberation from poverty, liberation from colonialism and so on. But it does seem to have withered. And we do seem to have ended up with a race debate, which is very narrow and quite narcissistic and doesn't take into account some of the extraordinary material questions that you've laid out very clearly in this book. Yes, I think um, that's the case. Some of it, I think, is um, psychological, actually. Um, quite a bit of it is psychological and deems from a little bit, I think, of perhaps even embarrassment. So this is how, so when I speak to, um, uh, you know, there's this whole idea that, you know, there's things, you know, black people should be able to say to other, can say to other black people in the room once there's no white people in the room. But once there's white people in the room, you know, we shouldn't say this because, you know, it's going to bring some um, uh, negative consequences. So the starting point, the starting assumption of, of, of many black people, and, and including people in Africa and black people here, is that, look, you know, these white people generally look down on us. They generally believe that their societies are more advanced than our societies are. They generally equate our societies, if we're talking of those of us who come from, from Africa and from Asia, with, you know, with poverty and corruption and all these negative things. That is the starting point. That is how they see us. This is, the whole, this is where the whole status thing comes. That is how they see us. And so, okay, what do we do to fight this? Because obviously nobody likes being looked down on, nobody likes being um, patronized. So, okay, um, how do we fight this? So, unfortunately, some of the ways I mean, people think of fighting it is that, okay, so we need to sort of de-emphasize those embarrassing, let's call them, um, things which may be, that portray us in that negative light that, for instance, 500 million people in Africa live on less than $2 a day. 
let's stop talking so much about things like that. Because if we talk about things like that, we are perpetuating this stereotype that we are actually, you know, all, you know, poor and um, can be looked down on and, you know, don't really matter, etc. So let's not emphasize that. Let's not really talk about that. You know, let's sort of pretend that doesn't exist in the world. And let's focus on perhaps, you know, what's just happening here in Britain and pretend as if, you know, sort of black status here in Britain can be completely divorced from what it is in the rest of the world. And, you know, Britain is this sort of small island and we can discuss it as if, you you know, it exists divorced from the realities of the rest of the world. So first of all, it's not really perhaps a good look. So let's not really talk about that. It's not good for our image. It's not good for black status to emphasize just how much poverty there is, you know, in black countries, not to speak of talking about things like corruption, etc. You know, that makes us look bad. So let's not talk about that. And let's try and, like I say, focus, you know, the discussion here within Britain. So it definitely is narcissistic, like you say. Um, it calls into question, um, you know, if, if, if you are saying that you, you, you speak sort of, you know, on behalf of black people and are fighting for black liberation, then, you know, um, clearly you are not fighting for the black liberation or speaking on behalf of 500 million people living on less than $2 a day. Clearly you are not that concerned about them. You are concerned about your status as a black Briton living here in Britain. That is what really interests you. Yeah, or about an African American living there in America. That's what you're really interested in, not about that. So you know, so first of all, don't say you are speaking here on behalf of black people or in the interest of black people, because you are speaking in the specific interest of a specific tiny group of black people. Um, so I think I think that, that there's some concern there with the status, how it makes us look. Yeah. So all that poverty in Africa doesn't make us look good. Now, if these things are ever discussed, because sometimes they will be raised, you know, the issue that, you know, there's white wealth and there's so much poverty around the world, then if we speak about it, we must immediately draw the link, you know, colonialism, slavery, etc. Because we must provide some kind of reason for why there's so much poverty in Africa. And that reason obviously can't be anything due to black actions. God forbid it can't be. Uh, it must be something due to white actions. Yeah. So even if we do speak about poverty, and we'll try and speak in very general terms, you know, not to make us look too bad uh, and not to perpetuate those stereotypes of associations of blackness with poverty. If we do speak about it, we squarely lay the blame on white folk that, oh, you know, colonialism, you know, slavery, etc. That's why there's that 500 million people living on less than $2 a day. And like I say, I definitely don't discount those historical accounts. I mean, it's completely absurd it would be to do that. But these are some of the reasons why you see the, the race debate here. One thing that's always frustrated me with the race debate here is its fundamental insincerity. It is disingenuous. So much that is said is not really felt, and much that is felt is never really said. And that's because you know uh, things are said simply strategically. Okay, you know. So what do we say? You know, how do we craft our narrative to you know make sure we don't look this way but look that way, and to perhaps you know put. I say the white majority on the moral and psychological defensive. We want to put them on the moral and psychological defensive and make sure they can't raise uncomfortable questions which we don't want to answer. Then you know we we have to keep on bringing colonialism and slavery because that's definitely going to put them on the moral defensive. You know, now who does this help? Definitely not those five hundred million people in Africa living on less than two dollars a day. What would be gained if let's say we even win this moral argument? Let's say we even win it. And let's say every single Briton says, okay, yes, it is our fault that there's 500 million people in Africa and they're living on less than $2 a day. Okay, we've achieved that moral victory. What next? How is that going to help those people living there? Nothing really. 
you know. Max, we get moral satisfaction. And that's it. At the end of the day, we've won an intellectual debate. That's why I said it's intellectual masturbation, really. Yeah? It doesn't solve the issues of people, you know, many people, most people rather. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Um, so let's uh, talk a bit more about the the possible relationship between the way in which anti-racism or thinking about racism has changed in the Western world and the impact that has on people's perception or willingness to confront global inequality. Because, because in my view, um, global inequality is surely one of the most important issues of our time. The fact that millions upon millions of people still live on less than $2 a day, the fact that there is a very clear correlation between your likelihood of earning enough to make you middle class if you live in America or Britain or Europe compared to your likelihood of being able to do that if you live in sub-Saharan Africa or South Asia. I mean, very clear instances of inequality. And as you say, they map onto um, racial groups, they map onto what we might crudely call the white West and uh, the black and brown um, parts of Africa and South Asia and so on. Um, let's talk about how these things interplay, because it's, it strikes me that one problem we might have is the way in which anti-racism has changed in recent decades. And it does seem to have shifted from uh, an idea, a noble crusade that talked about not only the moral importance of guaranteeing equality between black and white people in the Western world, but also the imperative of trying to do something about global inequality between the West and the uh, South. 
Um, more recently, anti-racism has become much more self-focused. It's, it's very often about alleviating a sense of white guilt, for example. We heard Suella Braverman uh, this week saying uh, she doesn't think white guilt is a very useful emotion. It's not something that uh, plays a, a, a useful role in society. Uh, but anti-racism has become about alleviating uh, white guilt, alleviating those pangs of of white embarrassment. And very often it's about demonstrating that you, uh, one, is a good white person because one is racially aware, socially sensitive. So it becomes a kind of narcissistic exercise. At the same time, as you outline in the book really well in uh, the, the chapter on the media and also the chapter on academia, uh, the Western-centric nature of the debate about racism today is extraordinary. So you really outline how Western media, which tends to be the global media, um, doesn't focus on things that are happening in Africa or, or South Asia. And to such an extraordinary extent that you point out that people in those parts of the world very often know more about America or, your, or Britain or France than they do about their own regions, than they do about what's happening in neighbouring countries or on their own continents, which is extraordinary. Um, and then academia, as you point out, uh, the debate about race there has become incredibly Anglo-American centric, where uh, you give the example, you know, one professor in the United States who makes a big impact on the race issue can become the global voice on the race debate with no consideration for what's happening to the hundreds of millions of uh, black people who live in outside of the United States, which is the vast, vast majority. Um, so do you think there's a relationship, I guess is what I want to ask you, between the way in which anti-racism is changing, the way it's become a fairly narcissistic exercise in different ways, and the way in which we're turning a blind eye in many instances to the very real continuing problem of global inequality? I think so, definitely, because um, as you rightly point out, you know, when the race debate is focused solely on events happening here in Britain and in America, clearly it's focusing max on events happening to black people living here in Britain or America. And it's really not even about the generality of black or brown people living here in Britain or America. These are usually um, debates instigated in professional spaces. So in universities, you know, in media, and these are really about the things that affect, you know, because the, the question always I think to ask is, okay, when somebody says a thing, what are these person's priorities in life? Um, how do they see their interests? And I'm not just talking material interests, psychological interests, emotional interests, and how does that affect what they're saying? And now the kind of people who dominate the race debate, like pretty much every other public debate, are essentially middle-class intellectuals here in the West. So people who are generally relatively comfortable, quite comfortable, and then materially don't have to worry about those basics of life or about you know, paying their bills and things like that. And they can focus you know, on the sphere of ideas. And they want to advance agendas that could be somehow beneficial to them and specifically people like them. OK. And I'm not saying there's anything fundamentally wrong with this, but it is simply the way things go. So the black university professor making an argument, you know, around race is focused around the kinds of experiences him and people like him have had within, say, the academia system and what they see is wrong with it and not definitely so much focus on the experiences of the recently arrived um, a black immigrant working the tiller Tesco's 
that person has completely different problems and completely different interests, and we want to emphasize very different things from that black professor. And okay, this is fine. I'm not saying there's anything fundamentally wrong with this, but it's important for us to note this. So, so there's that. So generally, you know, the, the, the debate is focused around, you know, academia, people in media spaces, you know, in the creative arts. So, you know, there'll be focus, oh, there should be, you know, more black actors here and, you know, more people there. And it's really about trying to, you know, um, further, you know, agendas and gain more what's called representation within this, you know, choice sort of cultural spaces, you know. And of course, that is beneficial for people who operate in those industries. So if you are a black actor today, a, a black upcoming actor today, you're, of course, happy at the fact that there is a lot of noise being made about the fact that there need to be, you know, more lead black actors and more roles for black actors. Of course, that's wonderful news for you. If you are a black accountant, not necessarily, you know, doesn't really affect you. You know, how is that going to help you? The fact that there's more, you know, black faces on TV, it's not really going to, it's not really going to help you. And of course, if we really look sort of statistically, we'll find that the people in these industries where this debate is really focused are a tiny minority of people. So we come back to the question again that they're focused on, you know, on their interests, sort of, you know, their agendas. And this is then sort of, you know, narrated to the public as if they are speaking on behalf of black communities or on behalf of, 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 of brown people, etc. I don't claim to be speaking on behalf of, you know, on behalf of black people. I'm simply giving my take on the whole race equation. So there's that. So again, because it's for people are preoccupied with their own interests, yeah, with their own um, immediate interests. So, you know, so like I say, if you're talking about people in, in academia or in, or in media here, they're focused on their, you know, interests. You know, how do I, as a black or brown skinned journalist, increase my chances of getting a nice job at The Guardian or at The Times or at the BBC? And that's, that's what I'm going to be focused on. You know, what's happening to people in Kenya or Zambia, you know, that's not my problem. And I'm not making some kind of moral judgment on them and saying that, oh, you know, black Britons who should wake up in the morning, you know, worrying about how to, um, how to solve um, people's problems in, in Zambia or in Kenya. You know, you I don't expect that of people. But it's worth stating the fact that, you know, this is how this works. And don't pretend you are speaking on behalf of, you know, all black people, etc. So people are generally, um, to some people are generally focused on their own um, private interests and their own private agendas, which they try to portray as group agendas. And at the end of the day, this leaves us with a world in which not much changes at the global level, at that fundamental global level. And in fact, those inequalities are exacerbated and there's growing poverty in places like Africa, especially in Africa, in, in some of the other um, uh, parts of the world, in South Asia, there's, you know, improvements uh, with poverty rates coming down, etc. But especially, you know, in Africa. And it's not changing the fundamentals of the equation. Uh, when it comes to the white people within those spaces, of course, there's this whole thing of white guilt. And uh, there's this whole thing of being, um, one thing anti-racists um, have done quite effectively here is be able to seize that moral high ground and uh, develop strategies for keeping white people on the moral and psychological defensive, you know. And, and that's an effective strategy if you are dealing with um, a people who are a bit uncertain about who they are today, a bit uncertain essentially about where their place is, you know, um, uh, in the world. And, you know, there's all sorts of pluses and minuses of that, but we won't get into that. But who are generally um, more uncertain today and seem a bit lost, as I would say many um, Western populations do. So when you are not so sure of yourself anymore, it's quite easy to put you on the moral or psychological defensive. And so this is something, this is something which is done. Um, and of course, there's a lot of well-meaning um, white people who genuinely want to help. And because they're being told by the 
black university professor or, or actor that the way to help really, the way to really change this is for there to be more black faces on TV series and more black people in movies and more black, I don't know, professors or people in, that's the way to really change. So, you know, so for the white person, they'll say, you know, okay, fine. Then, you know, let's try and do that. Another thing again, and I'm not trying to be cynical here, is that, for instance, if we're talking academia, when people start talking about things like, oh, you know, the way to solve this really is to decolonize the curriculum, which really boils down to there being more black and brown authors or more non-white authors on university reading lists. Now, from the point of view of, uh, imagine you're running a, a British university or American university here, you know, from your point of view, okay, these demands are made, they are made in the name of justice, acquiescing to these demands costs you nothing. It's not going to cost you a penny to include more black or brown authors on the list, but it's something you can do. And if you do, there'll be people who will say, oh, wow, yeah, you've done something significant here. You know, you've, you've helped in decolonizing the curriculum. Look, that is a win-win-win situation. So if I'm that white um, person, you know, running a British university here, and someone is asking me for something that's not going to cost us a penny, we can do it. It's going to make people say, oh, yes, you know, we've done the right thing, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really going to change the fundamentals of things. You know, we're still going to be a wealthy university. Uh, universities in Kenya and in Zambia and in Syria alone and in Haiti and in Liberia are still going to be poor and not compete with us. We're still going to get all the students coming from all over the world, perhaps even more now, because they've heard there's more black and brown authors on reading lists. So perhaps there'll be even more Nigerians and Zambians coming and paying over £20,000 a year here, you know, to our university coffers. So look, this is great for us. It's win, 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 win all the way. Cost us nothing. How does that change the fundamentals of the equation? In no way. Is that going to reduce the domination of Western, um, uh, Western academia and Western universities in the global debate? Of course not. It can only, in fact, enhance it, you see. But it seems as if either people don't see this. I think perhaps because, you know, the whole battle is the battle to get a little bit more of the Western pie. That's really the positioning. That's all the But How do we get more of the Western pie, you know? And okay, fair enough, if you live in the West, that will be um, your first question. But then why are you not asking yourself questions like, okay, why don't we live in a world in which the African universities, Kenyan universities, Zambian universities, that students from all around the world want to go and study in? Why are debates not starting there and then filtering down to other places? Why is it, you know, if Africa is, I would say, the continent that is most affected by racial hierarchies and, and, and by racism, why then are we not discussing ideas that emanate from Kenyan and Nigerian universities on the race issue? Why are we not doing that? Why don't you ask yourself that? Why do you think it's just okay that here in an 82% white country called Britain is where, you know, the race debate is centered, you know, in Europe and in America, also in a white majority society, that's where the race debate is centered. And, you know, your whole uh, battle is all, you know, how do we get some piece of that, you know, Western pie, you know? What about the rest of the world? Absolutely. And I think that's a very good example, what you've been saying there, particularly um, about something like decolonize the curriculum or, or the decentering of whiteness, which we see in the Western Academy and also in, in more and more workplaces as well. I think it's, it's a good example of how the gesture politics of contemporary anti-racism actually lend themselves very well to maintaining the capitalist reality that you write about in the book, because certainly they pose no um, threat to it whatsoever. It's very straightforward for uh, a large corporation or a large university to make those kinds of gestures, to give out copies of Robin DiAngelo's book on white fragility to to decenter whiteness in in the, in the lunch place at the workplace or, or whatever it might be 
Um, it, it's very straightforward for them to do those things, and it certainly doesn't do anything to upset uh, power structures, material uh, inequality, and global inequality. So I think that the, the gesture nature of contemporary anti-racism, the self-serving nature of it in some instances, um, actually works to distract attention from some of the structural material questions that you raise. If if I can jump in here, Brendan, there's a there's a, a theory in, in in social psychology, and you know, based on on experiments and surveys that have been done, not connected with race, but generally with how high power groups and high status groups tend to negotiate with lower status groups. And what was found there is that generally speaking, high status groups in their conversations and interactions with low status groups prefer to discuss everything except the things that actually decide that they have a higher status than those other groups. So they will be happy to discuss anything on the table apart from the actual thing that gives them actually more power and more status. So everything else is fine. And, you know, and so I can even understand this from, and like I said, you know, it's not a race thing. This is a human thing. And one thing which I I would really like to emphasize, you know, and I try to emphasize in my writings is that, you know, this this drive towards, you know, power, status, you know, control, domination. And These are human things. It's it's not not a white thing. It's not like there's a less smaller will to domination among black or brown people than there is among white people. It's not like there's less fundamental greed um, among um, black people than there is, you know, among white people. That's definitely not it. So, so those high power groups, they prefer to discuss everything apart from the one thing or the main things that actually give them more power. And so this is even logical from the point of view of, say, the white group, let's just call it like that, broadly speaking, wanting to discuss all these you know, meaningless nothings rather than actually the main thing, money, which is actually what really separates people in the world. But it's ridiculous that some of the lower status groups or groups that lower status, poorer groups, are complicit in this. And also following all these discussions about meaningless nothings, really, in the grand scheme of things, that are really not going to change anything, and they end up, you know, playing the same game. Yeah, and I I often think to myself that the one way in which you you can tell that the rise of white self-loathing in the West or or checking one's white privilege or feeling white guilt, the the way you can tell that these are not useful political exercises is because they have made not one blind bit of difference to a single life in sub-Saharan Africa. They've made no difference at all, materially, morally, um, except they could possibly be contributing to the worsening of these problems by dragging people's attention away from them and making us focus on our own navels, our own concerns, our own societies, our own hang-ups. And I did did want to ask you in relation to that, again, I think looking at the relationship between the structural material inequalities that exist in the world and how that impacts, not only uh, does that create a global inequality which maps onto white and black, as you point out, but it also impacts back home in the West in relation to how um, black people and white people sometimes relate to each other. One issue I wanted to ask you in relation to that is about... um, the politics of victimhood and, and the politics of pity. So you talk in the book about the different ways in which Western observers tend to understand problems in Africa, for example. So there is either this view that the reason these countries are so poor and and backward, I guess one might say, um, is because they're run by incompetent people. These uh, The black people who run those countries just haven't got what it takes. And you talk about the the introduction of good governance policies and good governance measures by um, Western bodies and 
globalist institutions, which really gives that impression that these are incompetent, inferior people uh, without using that old-style colonial language. But then on the other hand, you have, I think, a growing perception, especially amongst more liberal observers in the West, which is, well, it's not their fault at all. And if that African nation is corrupt and divided and um, beset by conflict, it's a hangover from colonialism. It's a hangover from what Western powers did 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, I'm really struck by how people talk about that in relation to the persecution of homosexuals, for example, in a country like um, Uganda. That will often be depicted as the responsibility of British imperialists who introduced these kinds of colonial laws, introduced these kinds of ideas, which were apparently completely alien. And now this country has no choice but to continue enforcing those ideas forever, I guess, which seems to me just extraordinarily paternalistic and utterly denies Ugandan people any sense of agency or responsibility. Um, But you talk about how that that sense of um, pity and victimhood and treating African people in particular either as incompetent or pitiable victims of the shadow of colonialism. You talk about how that also expresses itself in Western politics too. And you say that sometimes the allyship of uh, white liberals who align with um, modern anti-racist causes, you say that allyship is sometimes drenched in paternalism. And this view that um, black people can't help the fact that they are a step or two behind white people because they have to deal with so much um, historical baggage and stress and and so on. Um, so just say a little bit about the role you, you think the, I guess, the changing nature of radical politics, the way it's moved from a politics that was about agency and taking control and and making an impact on society to a politics that is now much more about victimhood and self-pity and seeing us all as as the victims of the these superstructures we can do nothing about. That's had a bit of a problematic impact, hasn't it, on, on the race discussion more broadly? Definitely. I think an incredibly powerful um, metaphor concept that seeps through all these discussions around inequalities, including around rape, uh, is a concept that was popularized um, uh, by feminists I, somewhere in time in the 80s, the idea of victim blaming. So there used to be a time, and I'll tell you why this is so powerful, there used to be a time when women who were, for instance, raped would report that you know, to the police and questions would be asked of them like, oh, you know, why were you out so late at night and oh, you probably wore a short skirt and all those kinds of um, uh, uh, terrible things. And so um, feminists rightly then came up with this concept of victim blaming, okay? That that is what was going on in those situations, which was 100% correct, and that that is a terrible thing to do. Now, that concept of victim blaming has now spread onto virtually all other social spheres when we discuss issues around inequalities and things like that. So now, if you point out, for instance, that African governments here or there, maybe corrupt, maybe creating incredible problems or worsening the problems in their own societies, you know, fueling mass poverty, et cetera, and that essentially the condition of Africa very often is down to um, African agency not being utilized in the correct um, um, positive way, African elite agency, I would emphasize here. People will come up to, oh, so what you are doing is victim blaming. 
Ah, that's again, you know, white people. So you you went to Africa, you or we, this is what white people would say to white Westerners, we went to Africa, we did all those terrible things to them, you know, colonialism and all that. And, you know, now they have all these problems and we're blaming them, you know, victim blaming. That's classic victim blaming. And it's an incredibly powerful metaphor. And it's an incredibly powerful sort of way of thinking because it resonates with the with emotions. You know, most people in this world are not powerful people. Most of us feel quite vulnerable on an everyday basis. Most of us do know that we either have been victims of some bad things or we could become victims. You know, so when somebody brings up, when somebody says that kind of thing, you know, victim blaming, we immediately sort of imagine ourselves in that situation. I'd be like, oh, yes. So probably this person now who is criticizing those people, if I was one of those people, this person would also be criticizing me and saying it's all my fault. And so that's really, really powerful. So I understand where it comes from. Unfortunately, I think it's extremely counterproductive today when, you know, if, if, if valid criticisms are leveled at the way, for instance, African nations uh, are run, people will come up with, oh, you know, that's just victim blaming. You know, that's nonsense. The only way you progress as a group is being extremely self-critical of each other and being of, of yourselves and being self-critical is not self-loathing. Because, you know, that's another concept also which has come. So if you're, for instance, you know, a black person or an African person who in front of white people admits that there are things African governments are doing wrongly, you, you will be accused by the anti-racist activists here in the West only. You know, no African would say such nonsense. But by the anti-racist activists here in the West of all self-loathing, all that self-loathing. You know, this person, you know, has been so bamboozled by white supremacy theory that they now hate themselves, you know, for being black and think, you know, black people are to blame for all their problems. No. Pointing out problem X, Y, Z in the behavior of actors A, B, C who happen to be black is not the same thing as saying, you know, black people are responsible for all their problems. You know, it's not the same thing, you know. But unfortunately, this sort of powerful and, you know, the debate here in the West is in Britain, I was particularly surprised because I moved to Britain eight years ago at how emotional the debate is here. I always had the, you know, picture of, of Britishness. You know, perhaps I was bamboozled. By, um, uh, by British um, uh, propaganda. I always had the picture of Britishness as, you know, a, a society where, you know, debates are focused on reason, you know, rationality, evidence, and things like that. And then I come here and I find that actually that's not the case in many of the debates, and certainly definitely in the race debates, that it's all about emotions. It's all about evoking, you know, you know these kinds of sort of powerful metaphors that resonate with people and, you know, make, these people are bad and, you know, those people are greedy and these people are evil and these people are privileged. And, you know, and there's really little rationality and reason when it comes to debate, for instance, you know, um, uh, like the race debate. Um, again, who does it help? Does it help those 500 million Africans living on less than $2 a day? The fact that if someone criticizes uh, African governments and is black, uh, he will be, that person will be accused of being self-loathing? Of course not. And, you know, if you pick up an African newspaper, if you pick up a Kenyan newspaper or a Nigerian newspaper or a Zambian newspaper, the people there will, the journalists there, focus squarely on what their governments are doing there. And the shortfalls of their governments, you know. Nobody is talking there, believe me, in Kenyan or Zambian media, that, oh, you know, this is the fault of, you know, the British colonialists who left here, you know, 60, 70 years ago. You know, people are not talking about that there, you know. And nobody would say that, oh, you know, we shouldn't be criticizing our governments because that's black self-loathing. Nobody would talk such nonsense. But there is so much nonsense here, really, and I'm getting worked up now. There's so much nonsense here, you know, in, in, in the West that comes up, you know, in this race debate. And it, it's often because, you know, Others involved in the public debate are afraid to sort of, you know, call people out on those things and say, look, that's absolute rubbish. 
you know. Um, as for instance, on the on, on the whole idea that you know, if you criticize something that victim blaming or you know, or self-loathing. If you're a black person, you are engaging in self-loathing if you're being critical. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Are you looking to get into journalism? Are you passionate about Spike's pro-freedom, pro-democracy politics? Then we've got the internship program for you. Spiked is offering paid placements for six months for aspiring writers, editors, podcasters, and video makers. You have until the 16th of June to apply. Successful applicants will start work in July in Spike's offices right here in London. Find out more about the internship program and how to apply by visiting spiked-online.com slash interns. That's spiked-online.com slash interns. Yeah, I, I mean, that's very well put. And, and the fact that you wouldn't hear those kinds of comments being made or those kinds of arguments being made in Kenya, when, it, when a, if a Kenyan citizen were to criticize their government, I mean, that, that really sums it up. It really sums up Firstly, how self-centered our discussions are and how disconnected they are from the concerns of um, the vast bulk of humankind in, in the sense of, certainly in the case of Africa, where there are 1.4 billion people whose ideas and views on the race question we very rarely hear. Um, I want to ask you about Black Lives Matter. And and um, you've, you've spoken about Black Lives Matter. You've written about it uh, many times. Uh, you talk about it in the book as well. It is one of the most noteworthy recent outbursts of anti-racist campaigning. And as you mentioned in the book, it had a global impact, even in Africa itself. Um, in Australia too, it, it was picked up by certain Aboriginal rights campaigners and across Europe. Um, that element of Black Lives Matter did worry me to a certain extent because it did suggest to me again, the Western-centric nature of the race debate today. And it was almost like Black Lives Matter became a kind of soft power colonialism. It was the only means through which one felt one could express local grievances, uh, uh, regional grievances. You had to do it through this social media-approved, corporate-approved American invention. And I, I found that quite a curious uh, uh, development. But I want to ask you what impact you think Black Lives Matter had um, because you talk about it in the book in a, in a quite nuanced way in terms of the popular appeal of it to begin with, although that did dwindle slightly. Um, but I wonder, do you think the impact of Black Lives Matter has been an improvement in the understanding or the willingness to understand racial divisions or, and global divisions in particular, or has it exacerbated the problems of the, the kind of self-centered, Western-centric understanding of race as being black pain versus white guilt. What role do you think it's had in terms of uh, shaping how we understand race post-2020? Very minimal. Um, the, the sphere in which I think it, it has played a role in, in, in the whole sort of, you know, race debate and around race is in the specific sphere of policing in the U.S., 
and that was a discussion that needed to be had and is still being had in the US, you know, um, policing, especially of black communities, etc. So in that sphere, it definitely has played a significant role and probably will continue to play a significant role. However, these other spheres of life we're talking about, whether it's, you know, the economic sphere, uh, the issue of status, the issue of power, it hasn't had any effect whatsoever. Now, the question is, why did a slogan like Black Lives Matter resonate even, you know, with people living in Nigeria who've never met a white police officer in their lives and don't have to worry about having to do that? Because there is definitely that feeling amongst black people, generally speaking, everywhere in the world, that... um, Blackness is associated with lower status than whiteness. White people are considered more important than us. And uh, not just by white people, but also by other people around, by other groups, by the Chinese, by the Indians, by the Arabs, etc. We are generally seen to matter less than white people are seen to matter. And that is a feeling the Kenyan shares with the African-American if you ask them about the global picture. That's That's generally what they will tell you. So that's why it resonated. Uh, The consequences of that, like I say, within the police debate in America, probably would uh, quite um, um, needed. Within um, a greater spheres, not really. What this did was create, of course, a moral atmosphere around race, which I talk about in that 2020-2021, which then allowed uh, for some to be able to further some of these other agendas we talked about within Western societies, riding on that moral wave. Because for a couple of weeks or a couple of months, Um, you couldn't really say no to any demand made by a group, you know, in the name of Black Lives Matter. Yeah, you couldn't really do that. To do that would make you a bad person. And so there was definitely a a moment, weeks, months, in which definitely I'd say lots of white folk were on the moral and psychological defensive. And so various um, various demands were able to be made. I I don't think really much has come out of that. You know, there was all talk about a reckoning and, you know, and we have these things, you know, once in a while, there's, you know, some event happens and then there's like, oh my God, you know, there's racism in the world and and these and racial hierarchies and no, 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 this time we really have to do something about it. You know, and of course, in a couple of months time, you know, people forget about it and move on. Not because people are terrible, but because, you know, people have their own everyday lives and generally focus on their own everyday things. You know, that's the way, that's the way it works. So generally speaking, it definitely hasn't improved the lives of people, you know, within the African continent um, who are ruled after all by black people and the police officers they have to deal with and the police officers who maltreat them are black people, you know. Um, So they have completely different problems from that. So the shared sentiment was the sentiment of global disregard. Yeah, that sentiment, we are not respected and treated the way where people are treated. That was that that's the joining sentiment. And my problem has always been, I've always said that sentiment is generally speaking accurate. The question is, what do we do about it? Yeah, what do we do about it? And that's why I try to get at these issues of, okay, why is it that certain groups have more power than others? Why is it that certain groups have more status than others? Why is it that certain groups are looked up to, generally speaking? Of course, we're speaking general terms here. Why is it that some groups are looked up to and some are looked down on? If we now get to the answers of that in an objective way, not what our emotions tell us we want to be the truth. Because another thing, again, wishful thinking, that's another thing which is a, a, a incredible characteristic of, of British debate here. People sort of have ideological positions. And, you know, they have the way they think the world should work and tend to interpret things to align with those visions of how the world should work. And, you know, and that's just wishful thinking. That's not going to really solve anything. So if we now come to the answers of those questions and 
I may, of course, be wrong, uh, but I think I'm not. If we come to the answers of those questions of what decides who has that power, status, etc., how do we now get some of that? How do we reverse that situation? Because the answer is not to lament that white people have so much power. The answer is to say, okay, how do we get some of that power? How do we get some of that status? How does this work? What decides this thing? Because, you know, it's not only white people that have status. You know, there are other higher status groups because really the world, like I say, since it runs on money, you can divide into successful groups, relatively successful groups and unsuccessful groups or so far unsuccessful groups, let's call it. And, you know, if you speak about the Japanese nation, for instance, you know, they're not white, but there's obviously a huge amount of wealth. That's obviously just one nation. It's not an entire uh, racial group. But there's a huge amount of wealth which they have, and they have a huge amount of agency. And generally speaking, um, uh, one can't say that, oh, you know, Japanese people don't have um, uh, agency in the world today or, you know, don't matter or don't have power in the world today, you know. They do because of the wealth which they have. And there are other rising nations. There's China today. Look at China, for God's sake. You know, 30, 40 years ago, you know, people were laughing at the Chinese. You know, people were making jokes, horrible jokes, about the proverbial, you know, um, um, China man in the rice fields. That's the way people saw China today, you know. Now nobody's laughing. Nobody's making those jokes today, you know. And why? Because of the fundamental reason that China is now a wealthy country that has significant resources at its disposal and is taken very seriously by the world. And the West is rather concerned today. You know, 30 years ago, nobody in British policy, foreign policy circles, was worried what the Chinese were up to in Africa or Asia or somewhere else. Ah, China, ah, you know, they can't really do much. Today, everybody's panicked about it. Oh, my God, what are the Chinese doing in Kenya? Look, they're buying influence here. They're buying influence there. They're building a Silk Road. Oh, my goodness, you know, what's happening? We have to do something about this, you know. That is how groups assert themselves. Look, weakness in group terms it's not a virtue. Unfortunately, the race debate here tries to portray groups that are in weaker positions today as somehow inherently more virtuous, as if weakness is a virtue. It's not a virtue. It's not a virtue. Um, I'm not saying that the groups that are stronger are stronger because they are, they are more virtuous. You know, strength is also not a virtue. It's a state of being. It's a condition. It's a circumstance. And if you want your group to be in a strong position, you need to figure out what you need to do to get to that strong position. Rather than spending your life simply, you know, criticizing those who are in a strong position and trying to suggest explicitly or implicitly that you are in a weaker position because your group is somehow more moral. That's absolute rubbish. Uh, I think the, yes, I think that ex- the example you give of, of the changing view of China is a very powerful one in terms of making clear the relationship between material power, economic strength, and status and how people view you and uh, people's willingness to laugh at you or to take you seriously. There is clearly a relationship between how powerful you are as a country, as a group in economic terms, and then the impact you can have in the moral sphere, in the political sphere and and so on. Um, I I did want to ask you about moral power versus material power. um, And you've touched on some of that just there. And uh, this is, I found this one of the most challenging parts of the book. And I think what, what I find very interesting, you, you talk about how moral power sometimes substitutes for material power. And in some cases, that can be quite positive and um, history making. I mean, Martin Luther King, you give them a case of Martin Luther King and his implacable moral case against segregation and for civil rights, which changed America and arguably changed the world, certainly had a, an extraordinary impact on history. So that's a, an example of how moral power, at a time in which black people in the United States had very little material power and still have 
uh, little material power vis-a-vis uh, uh, the majority community, but moral power substituted for material power and was a very useful thing and a, and a dynamic thing. But then you give examples in the modern period where the exercise of moral power can be a bit more vindictive and sometimes even quite cruel, I guess. And you you give the example of how on a campus, uh, on a modern Western Anglo-American campus, especially in the post-BLM moment, if a white professor is accused of racism, that can be the end of his career. That can be the end of his reputation. He can be destroyed with the point of a finger. And you do explain how that might seem like an attractive thing for a black student or a black academic or a black journalist to do because they might want a sense of political vengeance. They might want to get the upper hand for a change. So you do describe how it can be seen as a as a as an inviting dynamic, but overall, it surely has a destructive impact. So I wonder if, in relation to the moral power versus material power question, I wonder if we now have the worst of both worlds. So we have the exercise of moral power, but in a way that is not like Martin Luther King, but it tends to be much more towards you know take the knee, white person, apologize for everything that happened in history and don't say anything out of place or you'll be accused of racism. So that kind of moral power, which is quite censorious and quite uh, cruel at times. And at the same time, the questions of material power get pushed further and further aside because we become so focused on the exercise of that moralistic uh, glee, I guess, that some people might understandably take. So just to say a little bit about how you think the relationship currently stands between moral power and material power and how we might fix those things. Yeah. So again, because of the fact that there is this awareness in, in almost black and brown people, that there is this informal racial order that exists, that generally speaking, for many centuries and even up till now, especially if we go outside places like the UK, um, white people generally look down on black and brown people and they've you know, condescended to us, patronized us, whatnot, whatnot. Because today there is now this moral absence in certain institutions, in certain countries, this is really restricted to the UK and the US really, um, because there is now this ability that, whoa, even though we don't have moral material power today, there's a moral atmosphere here that if I trigger the R word, and say racism, you know, the white people in the room are going to run scoring around the place, you know, hiding for cover and saying, you know, oh my God, no, please just don't call us that, you know, anything, anything, but just don't call us that, you know, that can be an empowering feeling, you know, that can be an empowering feeling. And for a people who have felt denied power for so long, you know, that can be something that people grab onto, like, you know, like someone who's not had a meal in days and you suddenly, you know, put um, uh, a burger in front of them or, or, or put a meal in front of them, you know, and people grab at that because, yes, this is now a way in which even though we don't have material power, I can shut down these white people because they're so scared of being called racists and I can put them on the moral and psychological defensive and that gives me the upper hand. And, you know, human beings being what we are, um, there are people who will take advantage of that and say, oh, wow, if that's the situation here, this is something, you know, I can really use. It will feel good. It will feel good to see these smug white people who have for so long thought themselves, you know, so much better than us and talk down to us. We can now talk down to them. We can now tell them, look, you need to go educate yourself. You need to do better. You know, those are incredibly patronizing things for one adult to be telling another adult that you need to do better. That's the kind of stuff you tell children. 
that's the kind of stuff you tell your kids, you know. And even then, it might be a little bit, you know, patronizing. Tell your kids, you need to do better, educate yourself, you know, things like that. That is all talking down, and that's because what has happened in, like I say, certain institutions, is because materially we are not up there, but down there in the hierarchy. The, there's been a creation of a sort of a moral hierarchy, which inverts the material hierarchy. And like I say, in that moral hierarchy, it's, it almost reminds me of um, the promise of Jesus that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. So it's now that, that aha, the weakest, poorest groups are now at the top of the moral hierarchy. Uh, the richest, um, um, most powerful groups are at the bottom of the moral hierarchy. So it's an inversion of the material hierarchy. And, you know, like I say, this can be sweetly satisfying, and I completely um, get why um, the attraction of it to certain people. But again, it doesn't solve those fundamental problems. A, it is restricted, like I say, to really a few spaces, academia, media, and those professional spaces, um, uh, where this, this kind of um, moral atmosphere um, really exists. And two, it can be counterproductive in the sense that it's definitely breeding um, resentment in more than a few white people. Uh, who can be there and think, ah, okay, you know, so why is this that, you know, I can't even really say anything again anymore or, you know, any small thing I say can be interpreted as racist. This is one of the reasons why the race debate is so disingenuous in Britain is because people are simply afraid to speak their mind. And I'm not saying I want to live in a country because I've experienced that in Poland. It wasn't very pleasant. I'm not saying I want to live in a country where, you know, if people have racist views about um, a black or brown people, they just feel they can, you know, come to my face and just say it and, and that's it. I, I'm not saying I want to live in that kind of a space. I don't want to live in that kind of a space. So, but there's a line to be drawn here between, yes, wanting to live in a civilized society where people are generally polite to each other and treat each other respectfully and wanting to live in a society where I can essentially bully the white people in my environment once I just, you know, trigger the, um, by triggering, you know, the race word, you know, that is going too far. And like I said, it breeds insincerity. So simply there's a lot of white people that think some, some they simply don't say it, even though it's not really, really bad, bad stuff. It's not bad stuff, but it's questions they may have, yeah. you know, around the race issue. But they don't ask those questions because, you know, <laughs> oh my God, you know, if I ask those questions now, you know, I'll hear, oh, so what are you trying to say there? Are you trying to say that black people are such and such? Or are you trying to say that brown people are such and such? Ooh, you're a racist, you. So they just don't ask those questions, you know. And that doesn't also move the discussion forward. And it certainly doesn't change the fundamentals of the status quo. So the kind of society I would like to live in, the kind of environment I would like to be in, is an environment in which, yes, we think about what we say to those around us. We don't go out of our way to try to offend them. We don't go out of our way to try to humiliate them or to make them feel bad or to show that we think we are better than them. So we are sensitive to what people say, but knowing that we have good intentions, we are able to ask open questions about things and tell people, for instance, look, you know, I don't really understand why this is like that. You know, what do you think? Why, why do you think it works like that? You know, so there must be some element of, of the assumption of good intentions. That's the only way a civilized society can function. If we're all assuming bad intentions of each other or bad intentions from people from certain groups, or we are pretending that we assume those bad intentions in order to shut them down, you know, a civilized society can't function like that. It will just breed resentment. And then, you know, you have situations, you know, where some party will come up 
um, some, you know, new right-wing movement or something, you know, will come up and say, no, you know, we need to take Britain back and all that. And, you know, and 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 they'll end up getting, you know, 30, 40% and going into, getting into parliament. Even if that doesn't happen, it creates an atmosphere, like I say, of insincerity, you know. It creates an atmosphere of insincerity and potentially can create an atmosphere um, uh, of resentment. So, you know, these things are, they are give or take, sort of, you know. There must be always some kind of balance. There must be some kind of balance. We need to, quote unquote, we uh, need to state the problems as we see them um, clearly, but also be ready to listen to the answers of the, quote unquote, other side on how they see the problems clearly. Once there is a starting assumption that we all generally have more or less positive intentions, then everything should be open for debate. Yeah. Okay. My last question for you, Remy, is about what we do, I guess, which you you don't have to uh, give us a manifesto or anything, but just a few ideas. The the conclusion of your book is called Africa is the Way Forward. Um, So I wanted to just ask you, what you mean by that. And uh, I think what, what you're outlining there and what you're outlining through the book is that we kind of have a choice between, I guess, the intensification of identity politics, this kind of Western-centric political worldview, which tends towards divisiveness and censoriousness and um, a misunderstanding or a blindness to global problems and global inequality in particular. We've got that on one side, or on the other side, we can have uh, a, a more serious discussion about material inequality, material divisions, material lack in significant parts of the world and what might be done about that. And I, I just wanted to ask you what you think we can do. And in relation to the Africa is, is the future question, there's quite a lot that has to be dismantled first, isn't there? There's not only the kind of Western-centric race debate and and the way that um, distracts attention from what's happening in the world, but also, I guess, ideas about sustainable development, which is a very low-level form of development, a very patronizing form of development, good governance policies, which tend to be quite interventionist and uh, also neo-colonial sometimes. Um, There are different ways, aren't there, in which the African people's potential is frustrated both, I guess, by global forces, but also, as you've pointed out uh, articulately in this discussion and in the book, by the um, uselessness of certain African leaders and African governments who absolutely bear fundamental responsibility for what happens in their sovereign nations. How do we untangle all of that, create a world in which Africa's potential can be realised and appreciate the global impact the transformation of Africa would would likely have? Thank you for that question. So first of all, um, uh, Africa does matter and is going to matter an increasing amount because of the simple fact that by 2050, it's estimated that 25% of the world's population will be African. It's estimated to be roughly um, 10 billion people, uh, by then of which 2.5 billion people uh, will be African. So this is not a continent that can be ignored um, forever, as it um, for too long has in recent um, post-colonial history. So that's that's one. Second, for me, the way I see things, as someone who tries to um, think of himself as as a some kind of strategist for the way forward um, for Africa and, and, and by extension um, black people generally, is for me the goal must be uh, economic development, wealth, the multiplication of African wealth by any means available. Now that would entail, for that to happen, and of course we have specific African countries, there's not one African government, 54 different African countries, but if A, this goal is agreed upon that this is the absolute priority 
other things um, uh, are secondary to this. Then there's now two factors. There's the internal factors and there's the external factors. So the internal factors, we can't run away from. African governments in various countries, in Kenya, Zambia, Zimbabwe, um, Ethiopia, wherever it is, uh, need to start working better. They need to get their act together, if we're going to put this um, in simple terms. So you must have your house in order before you can go to battle with the world. So governance must improve on the continent and happily... A younger generation of people, because one of the main problems of Africa is that it's essentially run today by, you know, 75, sometimes 80-year-olds in most countries who have really been dominating the political process there for the past 30, 40 years. Uh, younger generations of people will inevitably take over soon. Biology simply will decide that. So the people who are today in their 40s are the people who are generally going to be running the continent in the next, you know, 10, 15 years. Now, these people from my um, conversations with people and, 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 and what I read, what people write and, you know, what they say, et cetera, do realize that goal I'm talking about, it must be the absolute, you know, priority. And that the status of Africans in the world today is low because Africa is poor. So they will, I think, improve governance on the continent and work towards improving that goal and bettering the institutions in Africa and whatnot, and those things that need to be done. So that's on the internal side. On the external side, there's obviously, there are global economic structures that exist out there. There are, you know, trade agreements, for example. You know, so do the trade agreements which African countries have with the EU. For instance, Africa has, and it's been a source of frustration for a long time for African leaders that these trade agreements are constructed in a way to be maximally beneficial to the European side, and essentially to the detriment of the African side. Now, I don't expect to live in a world in which um, EU negotiators are going to try and negotiate a, a, an agreement that will not be beneficial for European countries. That's obviously not going to happen. You can't expect that. But there needs to be some kind of realization that short-term thinking, only in terms of what benefits us, let's say, as Europeans, as the EU people might think. And, you know, it really doesn't matter what the outcomes are there in Africa. In the long run, are going to come back to bite all of us. Because we're, in that, you know, 30 years' time, we're all going to be these 10 billion people in this world. And there's going to be all sorts, there's all sorts of um, negative um, uh, uh, possibilities of, you know, poverty being perpetuated in Africa, etc. So trade deals generally need to factor these kinds of long-term issues, I would say, more into account. That would be um, uh, uh, that would be one. Other things, as I mentioned, there's um, you know a couple of key things generally which are needed for wealth creation to take off on the African continent. Apart from the internal factors, there's a lack of capital simply on the continent. There's a lack of investment, you know. So capital, education, infrastructure, those are some of the three key things that really need to take off on in Africa. On the infrastructure side, there have been some improvements thanks to a lot of collusion with the Chinese who are building quite a lot of railways and you know, roads in Africa, usually along the Belt Road Initiative, uh, but it's still of benefit um, to African countries. Education is another thing a lot of money would need to be pumped into because there's a youth bulge in Africa, roughly I think 60% 60, 60 of the population is under the age of, of 25. And in many countries, um, um, literacy rates are still way too low. Now, you can't compete in the 21st century economy if you don't have a well-educated workforce. And the reality simply of the matter is that most African countries simply don't have the budget to provide good quality education 
to mostly poor citizens who cannot pay for good quality education. To give you a simple example, the UK has a national budget of over a trillion pounds. Nigeria, the largest black nation on earth with over 200 million people, has a national budget of around $40 billion. Mm -hmm. A trillion pounds, $40 billion for a country that has more than three times the number of Britons. So that's the reality of the world we're living in. So it's one thing to say, oh, you know, African countries need to get their act together and governments need to get their act together and reduce corruption, et cetera. But as I point out in the book, you know, just leaving it at that is not going to suffice. That's the reality. I always try to be a realist. I always try to be realistic. Just that idea that, oh, you know, if institutions were improved today in Africa, you know, in 20, 25 years time, you know, Africa would catch up with the rest of the world. That's nonsense. It's not going to happen. The gap is too big. The needs are too huge. So there needs to be some kind of capital flowing into Africa. Whatever you want to call it, I'm fine with that. For me, it's a, I have a whatever works approach. And if you're going to call it reparations, I'm fine with that. If you're going to call it investments, I'm fine with that. Whatever you, whatever you call it. As long as there are resources that flow into the continent that go into improving people's actual everyday lives there. And, you know, and there are actors in this world who control significant amounts of resources. As I say in the book, I acknowledge, I know roughly half even of people in Western societies own very little, don't have much money. Though that, that's what the statistics say. But there is the other half who often have significant resources. There are multinational corporations operating in the world that have significant resources. There are rich country governments that have significant resources. So we need to somehow be able to you know, sit down at some kind of table and say, okay, look, this is the direction the world is headed. Uh, this direction doesn't seem positive for a lot of parts of the world. What can we do to actually resolve that? And the answer really very often will boil down to finance. It will boil down to money because to go back to the start of our question, you know, I teach a course on, 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 on African international politics and every week we have different themes. It's the environment, it's global healthcare and governance systems. And in almost every theme, we arrive at the same problem that at the end of the day, the African government is in a weak position because it lacks the resources. So if it comes to, for instance, um, vaccines you know, for COVID, African countries had to wait for other countries in the West to produce them because they didn't have the capacity to produce their own apart from South Africa, which was able to produce its own vaccines. So at every step of the way, the lack of resources makes us dependent. And when you are dependent, you're in a weaker position. You're in a weaker position. And unfortunately, human nature is such that very often dependence breeds contempt on the part of the people you are dependent upon. It's a terrible, terrible thing about human nature, and I wish we were not like that. But unfortunately, we are like that. And so that dependence, that constant dependence of Africa on aid and on all these kinds of things creates contempt very often in the, in, in the donors. So this thing has to be resolved in such a way that at least long-term, if we're talking 20, 30 years, African countries won't need aid and won't need help from other people. And there'll be strong African states because that's the only way we really elevate black status in this world. It's not by claiming Cleopatra was black. Because the point of that really, if you dig deep down, it's really about trying to elevate black status and try and associate um, uh, that historical figure who is connected you know, with prestige and with a lot of glamour and with power to associate that historical figure with blackness for Western audiences. Because it's not like they weren't um, powerful um, African queens within Africa who were black. They were. But Western audiences don't know them. 
when Netflix is thinking about making a film, ah, okay, so how do we make a film about a you know powerful you know African uh, queen? They think, ah, so who do they know? And you know, if they hear the names of some of them in Nigeria, which I could give, or in Kenya, they think, ah, but Western audiences, you know, they haven't heard of these people. So if we make a movie about them, nobody's really going to watch it because it's always about Western audiences. And so who have they heard? Ah, but they've heard of Cleopatra. Oh yes, Western audiences have heard of Cleopatra. So the way we would do it now is to tr- cast a black actress as Cleopatra. And basically try and create this idea, you know, that, oh, you know, there were black people in the past who had power and status, et cetera, before, you know, colonialism and slavery and all these um, terrible things um, happened. And so let's connect that, you know. And I get where that is coming from, like I say, psychologically. I completely understand where that is coming from. But in the long run, what does that solve? You know, it's not going to work. That simply, if I thought it was going to work, I would support this kind of strategies. I would say, oh, let's even, you know, I don't know, take, take some other historical figure and let a black actor play it or black actor, if I thought it was going to work. My problem is that I don't think it's going to work. Remy, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com listen. Shopify.com listen.